1: Hello, my name is Troy Halsell and I'm your host on New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Molly P. Rosen. She is the Ronald R. Nelson Chair of Great Plains and South Dakota History and Director of Graduate Studies at the University of South Dakota. Today we're discussing her new book, Grasslands Grown, Creating Place on the U.S. Northern Plains and Canadian Prairies, published by the University of Nebraska Press. In Grasslands Grown, Dr. Rosen explores the two related concepts of regional identity and sense of place by examining a single North American ecological region, the U.S. Great Plains and the Canadian Prairie Provinces. All are parts of modern-day Alberta, Montana, Saskatchewan, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Manitoba from the center of this transnational region. As children, the first post-conquest generation of northern grasslands residents worked, played, and traveled with domestic and wild animals, which introduced them to the ecology and shaped sense-of-place rhythms. As adults, members of this generation of settler society worked to adapt to the northern grasslands by practicing both agricultural diversification and environmental conservation. Rosenberg argues that environmental awareness, including its ecological and cultural aspects, is key to forming a sense of place and a regional identity. The two concepts overlap and reinforce each other. Place is more local, ecological, and emotional sensual, and region is more ideational, national, and geographic in tone. The captivating study examines the growth of place and regional identities as they took shape within generations and over the life cycle. Molly, thanks for speaking with me today. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for inviting me, Troy. I'm I'm delighted to be here and talk about Grasslands Grown. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um. So, so first question. I always start the podcast off of this one. Is
1: how did you come to write this book?
0: Sure. Uh, it's a it's a it's been a it's a book that's been long in the the making, and it really has its seeds. Although it's changed quite a bit bit, but it had it has its seeds in the. Debates um, that were burgeoning when I was in graduate school in the 1990s uh, in New Western history about places and processes. And, you know, I noticed uh, I grew up in the state of South Dakota and these uh, debates in the end, when we placed the West, West, we uh, ended up cutting South Dakota and all the Great Plains states in half, you know, saying that the West is the 98th meridian, you know, on further, you know, to the Pacific coast. And so that always um, struck me as well, you know, you know, I understood the reason why we did this, but then there was, okay, all of these states, you know, cross that line. We've got a whole group of states and the Great Plains and North American grasslands. And what I decided at the time was, you know, we really need to ask people who lived in these places, in this long space that is the grasslands, we need to ask them, what was their regional affiliation? Where did they think they lived? You know, did they think they lived in the West? Did they think they lived in the Midwest? Did they think they lived in the Great Plains? You know, how did all of that play out? Seemed to me we needed to go back. And so some of the origins, you know, of the book date that far back um, to those questions of wanting to get into those sources. And then, of course, I kind of narrowed down to the Northern Great Plains. And um, of course, with environmental history, thinking about, well, this is really interesting. You've got two nations that are sort of divided by an artificial, line, divide the grasslands by an artificial line. And so that would bring into an, an interesting factor into how culture might shape um, the way people uh, identify uh, in cultural regions.
1: Thanks for that. Yeah, as you you were talking, it got me thinking about, you know, me being a Southerner and and studying Southern history, you know, this idea of trying to define what is the South, what is, you know, the West, right? You know, it's there's never not going to be a project to tackle that question type situation. And so I could definitely see that, 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 that was at work, um, you know, throughout the course of your book. And, and, and as, as a, as a transplant to the West, I've only been in Montana for a few years. It's definitely interesting that like with Montana, you know, there's a break, we have the plain side, and then we have the Western half, which is the Rocky mountains and stuff. And, you know, at first blush, it may not look too terribly different, but if you start really, you know, trying to, to 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 pull apart the thread, you definitely see how these these um, categorizations of what people call the West. You know, it's a, it's always like, well, which West? There are many Wests, and so I think many you did West, a good job. Many Wests, great right. job, of really. Well, at least for this this geographical region, really trying to to answer you know, you know that question.
0: Well, and then, you know, on that note, of course, I did my graduate work in the South, right? And so I had a lot of people thinking about regions, and then here's this Westerner trying to ask these questions. And so um, it was a really nice kind of juxtaposition. So um, thinking about how historians talked about the South also then helped me ask new questions about the West. So,
1: All right, so this is the next one here. So um, so what kind of source material did you use to, to research and write this book?
0: Okay. You know, I consider myself a, a cultural historian, right? And, but also an environmental historian, but cultural historian. So I, and I particularly like personal documents. And so I used a lot of letters, diaries, memoirs, autobiographies, novels, poetry, anything that might um, be a qualitative document that I could get at how people were uh, building an identity around place and region. And this this actually includes a set of business records where, you know, the George Will Seed Company up in North Dakota where as a part of their catalog every year the president of the company, which is the the man I studied in that instance, you know, wrote a personal letter every year. And so I could I could tease out the meaning he was giving the region over a period from, you know, 1918 to through the 1950s, right? Every year that letter came out so you could detect changes. Or this includes scientific reports that a, a scientist in associated with the University of Saskatchewan um, made uh, detailing the, the surviving grasslands plants and flowering forbs. And, you know, it was a, a scientific list. But every once in a while, there'd be little comments that would be made about building golf courses and how certain plants throve on abandoned farmsteads or, you know, introduce plants sort of escaping their territory, running around the prairie. There would be all sorts of ways that I could get at anything that got to an individual person's ideas of how they were making sense of the space they were living, the environment, how they might, that kind of, you know, inadvertently the kind of regional terms they were using and not necessarily consciously, but that I could see them changing over time. Um, as I said, diaries, um, all sorts of things, anything that kind of work, I would consider cultural products, personal though.
1: Yeah. And and to that, right. Is that like, I definitely, I think the ones that stood out to me, um, because I think like you'd, you'd quote exactly, you know, so in so-and-so's memoir, they said, blah, right. You know? And, And so one thing I was trying to, and this is always a problem historians have to wrestle with and how do you, how do you unpack, you know, Someone who is an adult, if not in their 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s, writing a memoir about their childhood. Right. And so they have all this time to sit here and think and pontificate. And of course, they have a lot of time where you just kind of maybe you just collapse a whole year's worth of memories into one just, you know, thing that snaps in your head. Right. So how. there's kind of a question when it came to source thing. How, how did you kind of wrestle with that? Where you had an adult writing about childhood because you know that first, the first third of your book is about children yeah, in yeah. this region. So how did you kind of wrestle with that and try to to make sense of just really just the problems of memory that that can come up um, in, in a memoir?
0: Yeah, I did. I had a couple of things because I did use a lot of memoirs. Uh, Uh, I did a lot of work in sort of memory studies and also what like folklorists might call the life review, people trying to get at how people remember these childhood events and also studying a little bit of kind of childhood development literature. And uh, one of the things I found, and I was particularly attentive to uh, in autobiographies, many times uh, the writers themselves, there were moments when they, when their memories would be incomplete and they would they would talk about how they're remembering or how th- images came to them in sort of flashes and they knew it was incomplete, right? And they would also kind of uh, get into this mode where they would run through what happened as a children and try to remember how they experienced something. I remember Wilfred Eagleston from Alberta did this a lot, you know, just the joy he had playing in the prairie, making up games and labeling everything like a little mini, you know, childhood settler colonial who had to name every little, you know, bush and things. But then he would all of a sudden say, you know, shift gear and say, you know, now I know what you know, as an adult, what was really going on. And he'd give a, a whole parallel story and say, I hate remembering this when he just remembered it from a childhood perspective. The other thing that I did have in, in some rare cases were uh, a few diaries written by children, which allowed me to see how, you know, how a child might be mentioning the same kinds of information that as an adult is memory. In one case, I had a diary. This was an Alberta one, uh, Lulu Short, I think it was. She had a diary, and then she left a memoir. And it was clear when she was writing her memoir that she was looking at her diary. So she would kind of explain things. And so that gave me some insight. And then from South Dakota, I had this wonderful treasure trove of children's letters because it, it was in the 80s when... Um, they were in during what, what historians call the great Dakota boom, lots of homesteaders piling into the Dakotas and some of the family was in Iowa, some was in Dakota territory. And so they had a lot of um, letters going back and forth and these children, four or five of them in the family, they would all write letters and they'd all put them in one envelope and send them to grandma or send them to mom or send them to the oldest boy who's in school. And they each would tell a story you know, they were at different developmental stages. And then the one kid that I write a lot about, Hale Humphrey, drew all these animals. And that sort of helped me understand. And all his letters were about animals and how, you know, interaction with them. So these children's letters were, you know, help me to triangulate some of these problems that you might associate with memoirs, right? And um, partly because children and these letters are a good instance of that. Children do not sort of write in a reflective way. First of all, they're just figuring out how to write. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're actually, their spellings are quite endearing. And I would leave some of that in the text because, you know, as it, a, a representation of how a child might be making sense. But, you know, I, I, I did the, the, the best I could with memory literature and trying to be cognizant of, of uh, the kind of romance or nostalgia. And it's clear that there is some of that going on, but it's also clear they sort of, um, uh, you know, just uh, sometimes they couldn't even explain a flash of memory themselves. And I tended to uh, latch onto those things to help me problematize what I was developing um, uh, through the memoirs.
1: Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> you know, this is actually one of my favorite parts of doing this is kind of having people talk about the sources um and, yeah, yeah. and some of the you know yeah you know you never take it at face value so just anybody who's listening whether you're a new graduate student or just curious about historians do their stuff here here it is so uh so thank you for that um okay so let's get uh kind of into a couple of terms and concepts here um and, and these are the ones that i think it's it's for someone who's not familiar with kind of quote-unquote the West, right? Maybe you just think of the Rocky Mountains, which of course there's a whole bunch of parts of it too, but can you uh, identify that this geographical area that you're actually talking about, you know, where can we find, like literally on a map, uh, the Northern grasslands in the U.S. and in Canada?
0: Okay. Yeah. Broadly speaking, I'm looking at the North American continents central grasslands mass, which is, which if you look at the continent of North America, the grasslands make up about a third of the land area. And historically, this is any place, but most of it's in the center of the continent, uh, where grasses from short to kind of medium to tall grasses grow. And this included, you know, areas from Texas on north across the border into the Canadian, what are today's Canadian prairie provinces, but also what ecologists call the prairie peninsula, which jutted out far east, you know, to Chicago in Indiana, Illinois, that area. So if you, you look at a modern map, the, the historic grasslands were, were quite large. Uh, I folk zeroed in on kind of the northern grasslands, which starts somewhere in... According to Modern Boundaries, somewhere in north uh, northern Nebraska, southern South Dakota, uh, and go all the way up to the parkland area of Canada, which then goes into the boreal forest, right, uh, on the north. On the west, it's the Rocky Mountains, the, the grasslands kind of bleed into the foothills right and then on the east and this is the 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 bigger calculation that historians have played around with in terms of regions but in the east like i said it goes all the way to chicago for m- me the northern grasslands i would say it goes into the parklands or what we would call savannah areas in minnesota they kind of start in south um, southeastern Minnesota and there's a, if you look on a map there's a line that edges all the way and that parkland area is it's a transition area where you have woods um interspersed with sort of prairie openings right before you get into the full grasslands wide open spaces there's a transition area called savannas or parklands and that's continues with Manitoba so you kind of have this lopsided Circular space is the is the northern grasslands that I talk about, and I specifically talk about grass northern grasslands, not just plains or prairies. Historically, when people talk about prairies, there tends to be, you know, if you're thinking ecologically, that's the uh, taller prairies that need much more water than the short grass plains, which um, obviously they grow shorter and need uh, they're more. arid tolerant they don't need as much water uh you know that's sort of the the area that i study the northern grasslands
1: thanks for that i'm glad i'm also glad you put that map right there like at the very beginning of the book because i had to keep going back and referencing okay Okay, now where was this okay there it is okay there it is yeah so that was always helpful especially for such a massive region too right um you know just for me personally it was a good reference point um so kind of the, the second kind of concept related question here is can you kind of unpack for our listeners the, 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 the idea, the concept of place and place making? And very much aware that as we kind of get into the, the bone, meat, and potatoes of, the, of the, the book itself, you got tons of examples that kind of build on one another uh, that, that explain that.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean in a basic way, you know what, I, what as I got into this project I started thinking about well sense of place. people have sense of places. That's the same thing as regional identity. And sense of place, I would argue and place making uh, sense of place comes from your immersion sort of in the landscape um, over the days, the seasons, the years, the generations, your, your contact with an environment, it's very sensual. Uh, in some ways, I, in, for this aspect, I relied on the history of the senses. How do we, sm- what do we smell? What do we see? What do we hear in this environment? And those things are all historically tagged. Um, and so placemaking is, is getting to know that land, understanding it, um, growing up with it, um, children recognized all sorts of ecology and plants and grasses and had their own names for them and all of that before they actually understood what they were. But that was through this sensuous emergence, day to day contact, and of course, day to day contact with the agriculture they're trying to institute in the region as well. Place making would also be then how they talked about the place, like those people who wrote novels or who um, tried to figure out what agriculture would grow best in it and left tracks and studies of that. They were then articulating or, or the memoirs themselves that we talked about autobiographies, their memories and how they reflected on growing up and their place would be elements of what I would call placemaking. That then they leave for the grant generations that follow to read and understand and all of those things as they become accepted and you know, published and read by people in the region and people even without the region, beyond the borders, that's how you get the image of the, you know, the the, the land and sky that we associate with the prairie it comes from writers, comes from people talking about this place. They're making the place. The kind of corollary to that is the whole idea of I bring in a lot of cultural geography. So what do we call this? Do we call it the West? Do we call it the Great Plains? Is that where people feel like they live? Do they feel like they live in the Midwest? That's a real kind of, they're intellectualizing it rather than kind of sensing it. Because as as, as they're growing up, obviously they're going to school they're visiting other places, they're learning geographic terms, they're learning that they're part of a nation and that they're not from the South, you know, and they're not from the East. And so people tend to locate themselves, right? And and this is sort of why, like the personal documents, they do this unconsciously, right? They'll talk about the West or they'll talk about the prairies or the plains, right? And so um, that's sort of building up ideas of, of region. And to me, those two things work together. Um, it's a very human thing, though. And this is why when I start out, I talk about the northern grasslands as an ecology. And then the places and the regions these people make are kind of filtering or processing that grasslands content, right? Um, they didn't necessarily use the label northern grasslands that's a label i use so that i can let their labels emerge that,
1: that, 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 thanks for that you know and and it's we, we, we may come up a little more but you know the the idea of you know, literature and, and kind of art more broadly. Um, I mean, that chapter in particular, I think that might've been my favorite chapter because it was something I could actually relate to the most being a transplant to the West. Cause I'm slowly working through Ivan Doig's, you know, all of his books. Right. So I, I read Bartender's Tale, which, which kind of just takes place North of, you know, Great Falls, Montana. And now we're at work song, which is about Butte and all this kind of stuff. And so it, it was something that I, I came to appreciate because it, it was definitely one of those light bulb moments for me when I realized, like, oh wait a minute, that's actually what's happening to me right now as I'm reading these books, you know what I mean And so, 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 so I was, I, I, that was this is my favorite chapter and then we can you know get get into a little bit more um, about that as well.
0: And although I didn't include his works, I could have, right? If I had been going the next generation, he was sort of on the, the young side for the people. He was the next generation, but he's continuing that process. Definitely. You got that right. Yeah, and not, building
1: off, you know, the, the preceding authors and all the folks uh, that, that influenced his uh, literature, you know, throughout the course of his professional life. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. So now let's actually get to the, the, the core parts of the book. And so for, um, you know, our listeners here, I will say right now, it it is a hefty tome is, is the word I like to um, call it, um, and and so so with that right, like there, there's a lot we can really dig into, but we have a finite amount of time. So so f- so the first question, and, and this is essentially your, your first chapter, is how did settlers come to occupy these grasslands in the U.S. and Canada? Well, what was that kind of process, and what did it entail?
0: Yeah, okay, and and chapter one is sort of the you know the chapter's a lot packed in chapter 1 and that sort of give because I'm not talking about the settlement era I'm talking about the next generation the generation of uh settler society who either came to the place as children or grew up there right and so but I also feel like if you just cut in there you need to know the background right so that's kind of why chapter 1 exists and so chapter 1 is is really all about the the settler colonialism of you know the um, uh, and what's interesting in terms of this being a U.S. Canadian study is that you can see the northern grasslands area uh, were were that Canada and the U.S. fed off one another to develop this area. They developed at the same time. Most Canadian settlers came up through Minnesota um, until the mid 1880s when a railroad was complete. They came through Minnesota uh, on up the Red River and to Winnipeg. There's a lot of ties between the fur trade, between Winnipeg and St. Paul and Minneapolis on the Western side, you've got mining rush, cattle and fur trade linking Alberta and Montana. And so basically settler colonial policies like the Homestead Act of 1862 or the Dominion Lands Act of 1872 helped Canada and the U.S. bring settler society to the West and, um, Open immigration policies, there's a lot of Europeans that come in addition to Eastern Canadians and Eastern US residents, or even like uh, people from Nebraska and Kansas are going up to the Northern Plains and to Canada. Uh, Treaty making, this is, you know, treaty making, uh, setting aside reservations and reserves in Canada, boarding school uh, annuity, acculturation tactics, all of these things, you know, it's basically settler colonial policy is, is how my people, um, that I study arrived in the place. And I call it parents choice because most of what I'm cutting in at is their parents sort of came to this region as settler colonials, uh, -hmm. trying, you know, with ideas of what they thought they would find there, what they wanted to achieve. And then the people I study, you know, have are raised in the area have to come to terms of it with it as it is not what it was not the dreams of their parents. So um, they came to occupy it basically through the two nation states of Canada and the US, their policies designed to fully incorporate that land into the nation's. Right, that that was the goal, and they had all sorts of incentives to bring settler colonials there, including railroad policy, of course, too. And then they had kids, (laughs) (laughs) Kids, or they brought them with them. You know, you just
1: yeah. And so, so, so this gets into the kind of the core parts of the book here. Um, so, so this kind of gets into the so chapters two, three, and four uh, focus on how the children of these settlers, right. Uh, started developing, you know, place and, and all these concepts that you'd previously, you know, uh, um, defined. And so I don't have a best way to ask this because you talk about animals, you know, their interaction with actually the physical, you know, basically the flora and the fauna uh, of the area. And then also uh, just growing up and, and traveling and all this kind of stuff. So I'll kind of leave it to you to kind of pick maybe some of the one or two of the best examples that kind of un- that demonstrates this. But how did this first generation of grassland settlers, the kids, develop this sense of place through these different interactions that I just kind of rattled off right there?
0: OK, yeah, um, there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the great insights I had early on was the important role that animals play in their sense of place. Now, by this time. Uh, a lot of the large animals are gone. Grizzly bears, bison are very—you know—these. This generation probably didn't see the those kinds of animals until later, right? When they went to zoos and things like that, or they were reintroduced to the region. But a lot of the small animals and farm animals, domestic animals, birds—you know—gophers, prairie dogs, wolves, coyotes—you know—all of those things, those kinds of animals um, helped introduce. these children to the grasslands because children just followed the animals. They, They had to work with the animals. They played with them. They had to water their cattle. They rode their horses. And you know how animals, you know, if there's something going on in the environment, they will, you know, clue in their... Their you're their human partner to something going on, like whether it's the water or, you know, pl- good places to eat. So so one of the arguments I make is that in, animals help them understand the environment um, also gave them a rhythm of place. Um. Although railroads bring a lot of these families close to their destination, their day-to-day lives were very much circumscribed and their farming in the early period was circumscribed by animal power, right? And so that gave them a certain sense of the what you could see in the grasslands, the rhythm, um, how you, you know riding in a wagon and feeling the swell, you know, the swell and the sway of the landscape is a lot different than going with cars, right? So I make an argument that their particular sense of place is tied to animals. And what they found in those grasslands, I mean, all sorts of flowering forbs, you know, cacti and flower and prairie roses and lupine and you know, all sorts of growing things, different types of grass. And, you know, they became very attached to those things as they explored and played berry bushes. Picking berries was was a way that they also got out there in the landscape. But they became attached to specifically, certain specific environments were sort of interesting. Waters, water was very important, um, partly because of agriculture, but um, rivers running through Uh, sloughs, creeks, that sort of thing. Um, Woods, the woods that lined the rivers, they became fascinated with single trees that seemed to appear somewhere, which is sort of interesting. I mean, you would think that on the grasslands, trees wouldn't be a big thing, but it's almost like they were heightened in their sense of place. When they were there, um, they'd go visit certain trees, um, become landmarks um, because they were so few. Or rocks rocks that they pulled off of fields rocks left from glaciers or be big boulders here and there these were kind of local elements that they became really attached to and then i mean i'm talking a lot about the the native grasslands habitat but they also are as attached to um farm crops, to crops that their parents are growing, that they are helping to um, instill in the land. So the whole time they're growing up, more and more land is being put to the plow. And for them, the mixture of farmland, grazeland, grassland is, is their norm, right? They have this uneven kind of gradually transforming. And that's one of the things that makes this generation so important is that they actually do have firsthand contact with native grasslands that later generations, I mean, we need to rely on these early writers and these early shapers of experience because so much of it has been plowed under or grazed and so fundamentally changed. Um, All of those areas, um, those things go into their sense of place. And then as they grow up, I mean, they grow up in a very local world. Their, their homestead, their immediate area, as they go out to school. And then many of the ones that, that I study are fairly educated. Many of them go on to normal school or college. Then they go to different parts, different areas. They travel. They start to learn, oh, my con- concept of space and environment is different here than the Rocky Mountains, right, when they actually get into the Rocky Mountains, or they go back east, or even to Europe, some of them they begin to understand, um, just like me going to the South, I begin to understand, you know, studying the plains, you know, thinking about, you know, my fellow graduate students and professors studying the South, you know, there's something, you know, leaving the area also provides you new insight into what's different about your area. Um, So all of those things um it's it's a process right they're it constantly in process of developing this sense of place and and what it is
1: you know it, it, it was that chapter 2 on uh i think it was chapter 4 when you know the kids they they, they become young adults adolescents you know and they start to leave their homestead and it could be leaving their homestead to go to a school in town or leaving town to go to college like you said and, and it it's actually one of those things that got me thinking kind of at a personal level that like you know, growing up in Memphis, and this may be true for anybody who, you know, grows up in a pl- you know, like place for a very long period of time, you know, some folks move around a lot, stuff like that. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't, gr- I, didn't be- I didn't appreciate where I grew up until I left it type situation. Right. And, and that could just be comparison to, Hey, food's different. Hey, you know, people are, they say this, you know, you bet, you know, for me is the thing that still makes me chuckle every time I hear somebody say it, you know, you bet, <laughs> you know, um, and and even for for me as a transplant here in Montana, you know, you know, the Memphis is such a uh, in the South is so heavily you know religious that here on the east on the plains plains side, I don't really see that religiosity. It's there, right, but it's not punching in the face at every street corner. But I go up to Flathead Valley on the other side of the mountains, and it's everywhere I see it, right. And so it's really interesting when you kind of get used to a place, you go elsewhere, and you go, oh wow, this is much much different than what i thought i knew about a particular area so anyways all right that's a tangent that's an aside i apologize
0: well yeah well right your sense of space too like how close you stand i mean plains peoples are sort of interested in a lot of space and just how society gets organized yeah it's and it's you know it it is funny living in montana my
1: my concept of a long drive is (laughs) vastly different than what it was when I was living, you know, back in Memphis or the D.C. area oh, and stuff sure. like that. Ninety minutes for lunch is nothing nowadays.
0: <laughs> exactly. It's like ah, oh, just get on yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I understand that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so let's let's fast forward a bit
1: uh, to when these kids become adults. Um. And so it's a similar question, and of course, you talk about chapter uh, relationships and ideas. You know, relationships with and ideas about Native Americans, uh, literature and the art they produce, uh, new technologies, and then, you know, shifting terminology. And I think that was the chapter where he used those business, that, that George Will business stuff, if I'm not mistaken, heavily. But to that point, right, so how did this generation then create, project, spread the idea of these grasslands as, as a place, you know? And, and again, like before, whatever example you think might be kind of one of the the best ones to kind of highlight that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There's so many, and there's the, that set of chapters. And that was, you know, that was actually an interesting, you know, uh, challenge for, for the book. When when these kids are all growing up to, you know, on, on, on homesteads and in the little towns centered around homesteads, their experiences are similar. Well, what do you do with a bunch of adults who go off in all sorts of directions, right? And so the the second half of the book really tries to always keep us focused on on the kinds of issues having to do with land and environment and place, but, but takes us in different directions, like with the writing of the novels or painting plants and scenes from the area. Um, uh, And in just as it was sort of my kind of intellectual problem, one of the things that the, this generation was doing is taking the problem of how do we live here? What does this mean? Uh, They're still trying to adapt settler society to the constraints of the grasslands, whether it's from the eastern side to the western side of the grasslands. And then also in the context of modern agriculture taking root, moving away from the animal powered agriculture to tractor and chemical and fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer, uh, all the the kinds of modern ways that we associate with agriculture today that began in their lifetimes, and then of course took a, a huge jump with World War II. What you know, agricultural historians would call um, the Great Disjuncture, because agriculture after, with all of the chemicals and technologies and machines after World War II, is so fundamentally different from. The way these kids grew up right and so i mean that's the big context and of course uh industrial agriculture kind of mirrors or in in uh, emphasizes the already um evident spatial parameters of the plains right people think of space large spaces well modern agriculture is going to increase those spaces between farms because to have an economy of scale and a large farm you need much more land, right? So this is going to be part of the the transition. But, and so what these uh, adults are trying to do is figure out how to live in this place and how they can stay. So like the businessman, George Will, became very interested in indigenous corn seeds and, and squash and other sunflower seeds, other kinds of seeds. And he said, wait, these indigenous women, because of course it was the, Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara women who were the major farmers. Now, he grew up near Bismarck, where there's a huge uh, uh, reservation, Fort Berthold Reservation, where those um, agricultural indigenous peoples um, lived in his lifetime. And uh, he decided that, you know, we had to adapt and that they were kind of expert farmers and tried to convince settler societies to raise more corn using... Varieties that were hardy and drought resistant. And so he's adapting to the place. Um, others are writing literature like um, Wilfred Eagleston or Wallace Stegner, the one, the, the writer that I study that most people would recognize. But Wilfred Eagleston was very similar in terms of um, the kind of coming from a more dry part of the plains. Those two. You know, writing and really dealing with this conflict of their parents—you know, re, uh, bringing them or raising them in this environment that they sort of love, but then they felt like, "How am I supposed to make a living?" And both of their fathers were not successful farmers, um, and so that is a central theme in in the place out here in the in the construction of place. This uh, this idea of, you know what it takes to live in terms of agriculture was a theme that many, uh, writers dealt with. And one of the things that I do with Waller Stegner is I like to look at some of his early least successful writing, because that's where he's trying to work out how you can actually talk about the plains, how you talk about its light and the way it looks and what it feels like to be in all that space. Um, uh, Nora Brown from Alberta, you know, did a lot of paintings, both of like, today, if we saw a painting of a green elevator, you know, we'd think it's, you know, an old fashioned for us wooden grain elevator from the early 20th century, we think it's kind of beautiful and colorful. And, you know, in her day, these things were ugly, and people didn't think of them as art. She painted them and said yes these things are represent rural country they represent our society right they are the stuff of settler society and the lines their 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 verticalness in this horizontal world means something um so somebody like anora brown was kind of um you know influenced in canada by the group of seven nature painters she also painted and preserved, you know, talked about a lot of the native plants that were being plowed under. All of these people, those are examples of people working on the problems of the region, trying to help it emerge as a place that can be well known across Canada um, and the U.S. Uh, you know, I, I want I should say something and want to say something about one, one of the chapters tries to deal with their, uh, relationship with Indigenous peoples, um, and this ran the gamut. Some, you know, some of the people I studied never thought about them, or at least in their writings, I don't learn anything. They're completely silent about the displacement of individual or of Indigenous peoples. Um, they don't seem aware of a settler colonial process, although obviously they wouldn't have used that term, those that phrase. Others like George Will, who I said recognize you know, Indigenous women as having knowledge that settler society should appreciate, um, I see as somebody who is becoming more in tune with the landscape. Um, and understand, I mean, through this, through this understanding that he developed, he he then began to look at Indigenous peoples differently and said, hey, they have knowledge we don't. They understand the place better. And so you see a growing respect. I mean, for our modern relationship with indigenous nations that are still very much in our region, they, they weren't completely displaced. And I think they have different claims to the space that have persisted through all this time. Uh, it took him a lifetime to realize this, but he's somebody that I like to look to and say, if we could all be, you know, more like George Will and looking to the knowledge, and I think, to the extent that settler society has looked to Indigenous knowledge, particularly about the land and the place and ways to interact with it, the um, the better the relationship was. You also had settlers who, and children of settlers who 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 tried to remember their parents as having more. Uh, progressive ideas than they did, um, partly because the children had gone down that road a bit. Um, But you see them struggling with, with the land and through the land trying to get at indigenous, you know, the, the consequences of all of this growth of a new region, a region that is defined in a way that indigenous peoples would not necessarily, you know, uh, They'd recognize it, but that's not the way they would order the space. Um, It's also important, I think, to say, because we spent a lot of time talking about children, uh, that at the same time, children are digging in to the land and getting to know it. U.S. policy, of course, is bent on acculturating natives and separating the children from these traditions, sending them away from the region, sending them beyond the borders so that they don't have access to their, any rituals or traditions that would involve exploring the landscape, right? So that's a that's a kind of a settler colonialism for that generation. Um, I think that's important to uh, to mention. Uh, I don't know if there's any if anything I've been talking about here, Troy. I've been throwing out a lot of instances and examples, trying to give you a sense of of some of the ways I talk about these place making efforts as adults uh there's any questions that have come up in your mind or no
1: i i've gone back and i think you kind of you pointed to several examples um and, and the more i think about it the the george will is is the one for, for me that one in the, in the robert was it McAllman, the guy that went to paris yeah and if what did, what did he do he, he set up his own publishing house to publish his own books or something like that
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah i can't believe i haven't talked about him yet because he's one of my favorites and he's from south dakota so uh, yeah. um so. actually could you
1: talk about robert McC- how do you switch was it kind of his like, story, yeah. and, and then we'll 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 consider the, the the question answer how about that
0: okay um he yeah robert McAllman was you know Okay, he grew up um, the son of a preacher who was in a little town here in South Dakota. And he went off and um, became very interested in modern interested in modern psychology, modern literature, ended up being an expatriate in Paris. It's a much longer story. But in the 20s, when we think of, uh, you know, Gertrude Stein and um, William Carlos Williams and Ernest Hemingway, all these 20s em- you know, modern writers emerging, uh, McAlman through a roundabout way, ended up... Uh, having enough money to operate a publishing company called contact publishing. And he actually is the published Hemingway's very first book, three, three stories and 10 poems Um, even took Hemingway on a, on a trip to uh, Spain to watch bullfighting paid his way at the time. You know, so we see some of Hemingway, you know, developing, they sort of had a falling out later, but one of the things that was interesting about Mick was Um, He did publish his own books. He published uh, uh, Gertrude Stein's *The Making of Americans* too. It was this because at the time these modern writers were having trouble getting mainstream publishers to accept their work, and it took them a while to make the jump, like uh, like Hemingway to Scribners, right? And so McAlmon was sort of filling that niche, Um, but McAlmon, whenever he wrote. He tended to write about his boyhood and his young adulthood on the northern grasslands. These, these wonderful stories about animals and um, families and, you know, uh, all sorts of characters that he would find in town. And he did it in a very realistic way. Um, I argue that he wasn't just a romantic writer telling frontier stories but brought up issues of sexuality of, you know, I, I remember there's this one short story, you know, where he's talking about the railroad survey crew and like there's this known, you know, rapist going after, you know, women who are, you know, in their little homestead shack, single women homesteaders, of course, was a big thing. And those educators, teachers, and he would write about things like this, which, of course, explains why he somebody like him would have a hard time publishing in the U S because there were, um, they were censored and, you know, these weren't the kind of, these were modern topics, but not the kind of topics that made it in. I speculate too, that in trying to write about this region, which had a different aesthetic, different space, uh, spatial perceptions, different colorings, those kinds of things, um, that people who had the power in terms of, Publishing houses didn't always understand what he was trying to do, right? And thought, you know, and that had he some better better editors or more understanding um, or publishing houses, you know, had taken root out here, he might have had more success. And he wasn't a perfect writer by any mean. In terms of the writing world, he gets debated as whether he's important or not. He's mostly important because he published these these people who did become important, but I find his reading or his writings, once again, very um, important for uh, just like the, you know, amateur novelists, because they were trying to write about the place, trying to create this place and get images that the rest of the nation, nations, I should say, Canada and the U.S., would pick up on and, and, and help to understand the place. Um, very interesting Guy who wrote his whole life and never really had success, <laughs> until scholars started publishing his works in the nineties and and beyond. Right as a as um a significant historically, not necessarily for their literary quality.
1: No, that was the thing with McAlman that that I found, and I can't remember if this is something you said or if this was just what I took away. Um, I may be overstating it, right? But I could see a bigger publisher kind of going, well, "Who the hell wants to read about South Dakota?" You know what I mean? And but. That my initial thought was I was like, well, how about everybody who can relate to that area, right? You know, like, like, and it was in that that like he, I, I got the sense that he was trying, he he was doing it, like you said, he wasn't liter literary. I can't put the word commercially or um, kind of more from a critical perspective, successful, right? But here's a guy who's kind of wrestling with all these ideas, right, of, of place in the plains and all this kind of stuff that. I would imagine you can correct me if I'm wrong that like someone like an Ivan Doick might have read his stuff and been influenced by, right? And so I just found like this this fascinating character or his story fascinating in that he's sitting here doing kind of the the work that at in the moment no one recognized as valuable but it took you know 80 years later for someone to go, oh, whoa, 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 wait a second, this guy, this guy in, in this group of authors or this group of artists, I mean, they really do matter, right? And, and they really helped kind of create this idea of a place up here on the Northern Grassland. It's it just, to me, for whatever reason, that, that that particular chapter in his story in particular really stood out for whatever reason to me. It, it was easily the most fascinating kind of, you know, examples I found in the book was anything revolving around McAlman and oh I think I'm rambling at this point, so I'll stop.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well well yeah, no, and I just wanna underscore that that and I did contextualize this a bit bit by talking about Stagner and like Willa Cather and even Cather, you know, as famous as she she was, you know, heard people critique her saying, you know, um, you know, I don't really care how good it is, who wants to read about Nebraska, right? You know, and so she encountered that. Stagner was incredibly frustrated because he wanted to be an American writer and and people would classify him only as a regional writing writer. And he talked about the, the kind of lack of readership or, you know, publishers worried about whether or not there would be enough population, right? They're, they're making an economic, choice there okay there's not many people there we're not going to invest in that i mean so um and stagner interestingly enough i mean he's got some wonderful you know planes centered uh, novels like on a darkling Plain, big rock candy mountain and wolf willow uh So he kept, once again, he kept going back. He kept going back to this area, although he wrote about Utah and all sorts of things. And John Leslie Powell, he wrote history and literature. But um, he's not uh, as famous for, though, and he didn't win awards for his plain stuff, right? That, you know, everybody, not every, most people know about it, but that's not where he made his fame, even though throughout his life, he returned to those subjects and included it. Uh, so that's sort of a, a telling, I think, um, that fits with this struggle to for a literary, you know, to merge on the northern grasslands, so to speak.
1: No, yeah. th- th- thanks for that. Okay, so we're kind of uh, nearing the end point here of the, uh, the interview. So just a couple questions left, and, and you've already you know, essentially answer this question. But could you uh, kind of sum up? You know, how can your book help readers better understand the American West?
0: Yeah, I think. Um, hmm. Well, I think it really um, gives us um, a lot of thought on just distinguishing. You know, what is regional identity? What is sense of place? How do you acquire them? What are the components of it? But then, even more important than that, I think. The book, in the end, you know, tries to talk about the emergence of, you know, the Middle West and the West and the Great Plains and the Canadian Prairie Provinces. These regions, you know, how they emerge and that really making an argument that regions aren't fixed, like they aren't forever. They change over time. And in this period where nations are still building themselves, still acquiring regions and land from you know wars and treaties with indigenous peoples. They're still incorporating land, so there's a shifting going on. And regions have a history; they aren't fixed in time. So I think that, that that's an interesting thing for for scholars everywhere. And then for the West, those of us that you know uh, think about settler colonialism, and then also think about the whole you know where is the West? What is the West? This this book contributes to that um, and. Um, I'm happy to, to have those discussions still uh, and to bring the, the Northern Plains peoples, their voices into those discussions. Thanks for that. And it still goes back to that, that, that uh, seems to be
1: never ending uh, question of what is the West, right? And, you know, as a as a Southerner who, who who looked west, I mean, I was like, "Man, it's Rocky Mountains, right?" Uh, you know, and that was it. That was my definition of it. And of course, when I get out of here, and the plains are, are so. I was described as very mesmerizing. Um, and mm-hmm. whether you're driving through, like me, South Dakota, or or through eastern Montana and people may get this idea that they're kind of flat and they go on forever and I'm like no they're they're plains and they're prairies or whatever the correct term is you, you can correct me on this one yeah but th- there's nothing flat about them and it's and when I tell people that right just how they roll in the rock formations that exist within the plains themselves right people are always like wait what no it's supposed to be you know corn you know <laughs> and I'm like no it's 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 more complicated than that so I think you've definitely helped um, anybody who who thinks about these questions very much um, Wrestle with it more, but then also really kind of hey, let's talk about these upper plains and let's 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 add this to you know the the growing forever you know, never ending definition of what it what is what is the the west. Um, so last question, um, always end with this one. What's next for you? Uh, what are you working on, if anything?
0: Yeah, well, I'm continuing to work on you know transnational U.S. Uh, Canadian regional studies, specifically kind of, I'm looking at some programs in the 1940s. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of continuing um, the very end of this book, I get into, you know, some of the institutions, uh, some of the archives and the, and the regional publishers that did kind of finally take root in the plains in the middle of the 20th century, kind of looking at them and their role um, in, in, in creating regions in the middle of the 20th century that's one project thanks for that um
1: yeah you know me moving out this way i have a, a the same thing i had when i was living in memphis just a, an endless list of possible research topics and and i've actually kind of been drawn to um or just the u.s you know montana border um uh, out this way and so you know i was kind of happy to hear hey i was happy to, to read this because this kind of it gives me something to work off of if I ever kind of look at that, and, and I was kind of more curious about truckers and tourism and stuff because you know we got so many Canadian flags. Hey, welcome Canada! And of course, then you see we do not accept Canadian money, you know, on stores and stuff like that. So it's always it's just something you're not going to see unless you live on a border, right? So whether it's Texas or or Montana and Canada and stuff like that. But well, Bob, this was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. I really have enjoyed uh, this conversation and your interest in the book. And uh, thanks so much, Troy.
1: Absolutely. Our listeners, till next time.